1: Welcome to the Premium Brands Holdings Corporation 3rd Quarter 2021 Earnings Conference Call. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. After the speaker's presentation, there will be a question and answer session. To ask a question during the session, you need to press star 1 on your telephone. Please be advised that today's conference is being recorded. If you require any further assistance, please press star 0. Our speakers will be George Pellio Logo, CEO and President of Premium Brands, and Will Kaludich. CFO of Premium Brands. I would now like to hand the conference over to your speaker today, George Paleo logo Please go ahead.
2: Thank you, Misty. Welcome everyone to our 2021 third quarter conference call. With me today, I have our CFO, Will Kaludic. Our presentation today will follow the deck that was posted on our website this morning. We are now in slide five, which outlines certain key highlights for the quarter. Despite the various well-documented challenges facing the manufacturing sector and the overall economy, we reported excellent results for the quarter and year-to-date. Our CFO, Will Kaludic, will provide you with more color on our results later on in the presentation. Commodity cost inflation, supply chain issues and labor shortages continue to challenge our various platforms almost daily. Our strong results for the quarter demonstrate the balance and resilience of our unique business model and its ability to continue to deliver above-average and consistent returns to our shareholders despite the headwinds. Food service demand returned during the quarter while our seafood group delivered record results. In addition, our meat snacks, charcuterie, cooked protein and sandwich platforms continue to perform well. Clearwater Seafood once again had an excellent quarter and results are running well ahead of plan. Clearwater's results are benefiting from robust demand and strong pricing for its products combined with proactive and disciplined cost management. We remain very encouraged with what we see in terms of seafood related consumer trends and we're very well positioned to capitalize on these trends in both retail and food service in North America and globally. Our original investment thesis that seafood is at the intersection of several powerful consumer trends like health and wellness, convenience and aging demographics is beginning to translate into excellent financial performance for our seafood platform. We're pleased to announce the closing of two strategic acquisitions after the end of the third quarter. Right, which is located in Pennsylvania, US, complements our cooked meat platform very well while Westmoreland further strengthens our value-added lobster business. Both companies have been highly successful and are run by very talented entrepreneurs whom we welcome as partners. We're now on slides 6 to 9. I have included here some pictures of new products recently launched by the PB ecosystem. I'm sure you'll agree with me that the products look amazing and demonstrate our passion for innovation and for reinventing and disrupting the traditional food chain with best-in-class, clean, wholesome, and great-tasting products. We're now on slide 10. As you can see, our acquisition pipeline remains very full, and we expect to complete many more transactions in the months and years to come. You will notice that the active and advanced files add up to $1.4 billion in sales. I will now pass the presentation to our CFO, Will Kaludic, who will update you on our financial results for the quarter. Will? Thanks,
3: George. Before I begin, I would like to remind you that some of the statements made on today's call may constitute forward-looking information and our future results may differ materially from what we discussed. Please refer to our MD&A for fiscal 2020 and for the third quarter of 2021, as well as other information on our website for a broader description of the risk factors that could affect our performance. Okay, now turning to the quarter, I'm on slide 12, talking about our sales. Um, Sales for the quarter were 1.341 billion, up 240 million from 2020, representing a 22% increase. The major drivers of that was by far the largest was selling price inflation, roughly $120.6 million in the quarter. This was very broad-based across all of our businesses and pretty well across all of our product categories. Acquisitions contributed about $96 million to our growth. Organic volume growth contributed $51.1 million and that came from our specialty foo- within our specialty food segment from sandwiches, meat snacks, charcuterie and cooked protein products and within our premium food distribution segment from the retail expansion initiatives. COVID related factors had a relatively neutral impact on our quarter as we saw a tremendous comeback in our food service sales, roughly $26.4 million of growth in the quarter and that was but however that was mainly offset or primarily offset by a recovery or return to normal demand levels in the retail channel which resulted in a decline of about 25.8 million giving the overall impact relative a, a neutral impact and I'll discuss about that more in a later slide. Our sales were also negatively impacted by the stronger Canadian dollar which resulted in a lower translated value for our US-based businesses. Looking at the COVID-related impact on our quarter, we estimate that to be about $33 million continuing impact and I'll talk a bit more about that in a later slide. Normalizing for that, our sales for the quarter are $1.375 billion. Turning to slide 13, talking about our organic growth rates for the quarter, Overall growth rate for the quarter was 4.6% or 4.7%, which is uh, down from where we've been trending the last number of quarters, and that was primarily due to a number of what we consider transitory factors. Within our specialty foods group, we had some capacity related issues in the meat, snack, and kebab categories. This resulted in about $21 million of short shipments. Our specialty food businesses, also particularly our branded businesses, did a lot less featuring during the quarter. It's part of the normal sales cycle. However, they pulled back as a result of both um, margin pressures from the commodity price inflation we were seeing out there and as they put through price increases, there's delays in that and one way they manage those delays is through less featuring and then also with labor and supply chain challenges uh, impacting the ability to grow as well in the short term. Um, on our premium food distribution group, uh, we saw some transitory impacts with less live lobster featuring as a result of record high lobster prices. And I'll, I'll show you that in a bit on another slide. As well as a longer term, we see a, a key growth driver in our premium food distribution group being the food service channel and while we saw a tremendous recovery in that channel from the covid related impacts last year it's still in recovery mode so if if we look at the two segments and and sort of analyze their their organic growth a, a little bit you know i want to show how there's a lot of tremendous activity a lot of growth going on there there and, and sort of try and filter out some of these transitory impacts so if we look at specialty food groups they're Organic growth rate, volume growth rate for the quarter was 5.5%. We normalized for COVID related factors, namely the recovery or the re- reversal of the retail uh, demand bump we saw in 2020. Their normalized rate for that is about 7%. And then if we normalize for the shorts, um, meat snack and kebab, kebab shorts they're close to a 10% growth rate for the quarter, which is getting closer to our our medium-term expectations of the growth in that category. And and that's before considering the featuring impacts and the supply chain impacts. In terms of our premium food distribution group, its organic volume growth for the quarter was 3.2%. Once we normalize for the food service recovery, Uh, their their sales are relatively flat, uh, 0.3% organic growth rate. But then when we take into account the impacts of the reduced live lobster featuring, again a a transitory impact, and reduced exports due to some supply chain challenges in Asia, uh, their growth rate is about 6.2%. So again, approaching our, our longer term expectations, with that group, particularly given that we're not seeing the organic growth yet coming from food service. Uh, turning to the next slide, it shows uh, some of our, our most of our major growth initiatives across our six platforms. The ones highlighted in yellow are the ones contributing to the quarter, and the unhighlighted ones are ones that are in the works and are expected to be major drivers of organic growth in the future. So lots of good stuff to come. Turning to slide 15, uh, this is a a summary of our major capacity expansion initiatives across the six platforms. The ones with no highlighting are completed and those are contributing to our current organic growth. The ones highlighted are ones in the works that uh, will address some of the capacity issues we're having today. And you can see, particularly in our protein group, we've got three major initiatives underway, all focused on the meat snack category, which we've been seeing tremendous growth as we roll out our U.S.-based strategies. And then in our sandwich group, we've got three major projects as well as that. That group continues to generate high um, double-digit organic volume growth. Turning to slide 16 and just talking a bit about the impact of COVID related factors on Q3, Uh, starting with the premium food distribution group, you can see we saw a good recovery in food service sales, roughly $21 million of recovery from the 2020 impacts and then that was partially offset by the reversal of that unusual demand we saw in the retail channel in 2020. So overall, a a favorable impact of about $11 million in the premium food distribution group. In our specialty food uh, group, we saw some food service recovery positive impact, but that was by far offset by the reversal in the retail demand impact, giving them an overall sort of negative impact of just a little under $11 million. Once you net the two segments, you can see overall COVID related factors was a, a, a neutral factor on the quarter, overall organic volume growth. Turning to the next slide, talks a little bit about the continuing impact of COVID on, on our business in the quarter. You know, looking at Premium Food Distribution Group, you can see most of the continuing impact is on their cruise line business. Uh, we saw very little recovery in that in the third quarter. We do expect to start seeing that ramp up in Q4 and then um, and even quicker in Q1 next year. And then also a little bit of continuing food service impact, mainly related to hotels and events and the fact that uh, Q3 was sort of a ramp up quarter for food service. So overall, the continuing impact in the third quarter on premium food distribution, roughly $12 million dollars. Looking at the specialty foods group, uh, you can see airlines. We saw some recovery of airline business in the quarter, but it's still relatively small. Uh, We expect to see that improving in Q4 and again Q1 next year. So a continuing impact in Q3 of about $7 million. And then continuing food service impacts uh, uh, relating mainly to hotels and institutions and then the ramp up factor in Q3. You can see on the retail side, we've pretty well reversed the full extent of what we estimated the unusual COVID demand bump to be in 2020. So going forward, that that should no longer be a factor. And then we had some new impacts in the quarter, roughly $8 million relating to supply chain challenges, uh, mainly uh, some procurement issues on some very high valued pork items and then some uh, plant shutdown issues in our burger division Um, so we do expect all of that to reverse in 2022. So the overall impact on specialty foods about uh, 20.6 million dollars and then the combined impact on the two two segments roughly 33 million dollars in the quarter. Turning to slide 18 and, and looking ahead a little bit the green line represents our weekly sales volumes or sales for 2021, the blue line for 2020, the gold line for 2019. You can see post the third quarter, we continue to generate very strong sales momentum driven by organic growth, COVID recovery, as well as inflation. Turning to slide 19, looking at our EBITDA for the quarter, it was $122.6 million representing an increase of 29.1 million or 31% from 2020. Looking at the major drivers, clearly selling price inflation, acquisitions, organic growth were the big three drivers. Following them, we did see some reversal of COVID related costs from 2020, mainly plant inefficiencies and staff thank you bonuses paid out last year that weren't incurred this year. Uh, we also saw a reduction in our marketing and promotion costs. Kind of, It ties back to my comment earlier on our branded businesses doing less featuring as a strategy to manage their margins as well as deal, uh, deal with some labor growth issues. Uh, we continued to see production efficiency improvements, and in our specialty food group, there was some reduced incentive-based compensation accruals. Offsetting these positive factors were... Incredible commodity cost inflation. We saw it across all of our commodity inputs uh, as well as just general costs. That pretty well offset our selling price increases for the quarter. You know, our businesses are continuing to put through more selling price increases post the quarter as well as in the quarter that 120 million selling prices we saw was. Was a transitioning of, of initiatives, so it wasn't the full impact of the current price increases put through. So um, uh, while commodity costs um, continue to rise, we are addressing it with selling price increases. Wage inflation was a, a, another significant factor in the quarter. Plant overhead increases, some of that due to our higher volumes, but also. We did have to take much more significant inventory positions just to manage our way through the supply chain disruptions we're seeing and that created a lot of additional costs, particularly in outside storage. Then we also saw some freight inflation and the impact of the stronger Canadian dollar on the translation of our, Canadian, or sorry, our US-based businesses. Our EBITDA margin for the quarter was 9.1%. <coughs> A nice improvement from 2020, which was 8.5%, still below expectations because of the the commodity price inflation primarily, and and also the impacts of the continuing impacts of COVID. If we look at the impact of COVID on the quarter, we estimate that to be about $7.6 million, primarily all of that related to the sales impact I talked about earlier. Normalizing for that, our EBITDA margin for the quarter is about 9.5%. Turning to slide 20, the next four slides, 20 to 24, all indicate or show you the trends in some of the key commodity inputs used by our businesses. In all four slides, you'll see the story is very similar. It's one of increasing demand with the reopening of economies, particularly North America and Asia economies. And then offsetting or creating tightness in the market is supply challenges relating to labor, relating to supply chain disruptions. So you kind of have a worst case scenario of increasing demand and, and sluggish supply growth. And as a result, the tremendous inflation we've been seeing. So in all these slides, you'll see the commodities are at record highs. This one shows a basket of pork-based products that we purchase or businesses' purchases, you can see all at record highs. If you flip to the next slide for beef, again all at record highs. I know there's stories in our company of some of our businesses on certain beef products because of such high increases in these costs of these products have had to put through price increases as high as twenty-four percent on certain beef entree products. Um, next slide shows you lobsters again record highs and then finally the last last slide Atlantic and and Chilean salmon both at record highs. Turning to slide 24 and our adjusted earnings for the quarter which were 57.8 million dollars an increase of 15.8 million dollars or 37.6 percent from 2020. The key driver of that was our EBDA growth and then that was offset by a little bit of increases in our depreciation as a a result of acquisitions and recent capital projects and also some additional interest expense due to higher debt balances, partially offset by favorable market conditions and better credit spreads on our senior debt. Then also increased income taxes offset our EBDA growth. Looking at the impact of COVID, Taking the impact on our EBITDA of 7.6 million, which after taxes was about 5.7, our uh, normalized for COVID earnings would be about $63.5 million or $1.46 per share. Turning to slide 25 and, and the results of our recent investment, Clearwater Seafood, a very good quarter, as George mentioned earlier. Their sales increased by 24.7 million or um, $24.7 million from uh, 2020 to $158.4 million. This was driven by primarily the reopening of the economies in North America and Asia, which provided a tremendous amount of price inflation, which, which benefits uh, Clearwater and their seafood commodities, as well as some volume increases. And then offsetting that was the stronger Canadian dollar, and the translation of their U.S. or their exports, which a large portion of which are U.S. and Europe Euros. And then some lower crab sales as a result of some procurement issues and the timing of landings. Clearwater's EBITDA for the quarter was 40.1 million, a 14.7 million or 58% increase from 2020. This was driven by the strong pricing environment based on the nature of Clearwater's business, whereby as a harvester of many of their species, their costs are relatively fixed, so they've benefited immensely from the inflation we've seen across all proteins, including seafood. Then also, organic growth was a positive contributor, some operational efficiencies, partially due to better catches this this year, as well as the reversal of some pandemic-related inefficiencies last year. And Finally, some positive FX hedging gains and then these were offset partially by the reversal of some government subsidies last year as well as increased incentive accruals. Turning to slide 26 and talking a little bit about our five-year outlook. Um, we, we set back in 2018 objectives to have 6 billion in sales and 600 million in EBDA by 2023. You know, walking through where we are in terms of our sales target, you can see our sales for the trailing 12 months at the end of Q3 were 4.642 billion. If we normalize for the trailing 12 months impact of the pandemic or COVID related factors, that's about 170 million, 79 million, and then we annualize for acquisitions completed partway through 2020 or in 2021. That's an impact of about 423 million, giving us a current run rate of 5.244 billion. And then if we look ahead to 2022, 2023, make a, a very conservative growth assumption of nominal growth of 6%. The reality is we've been growing at a volume growth of roughly 8.5% over the last two years or over 10% nominal terms. So, again, a very conservative assumption. That would give us about $648 million of growth, leaving us with only the need to complete about $170 million in acquisitions to achieve our $6 billion target. And as George mentioned, we have well over... $1.4 billion in acquisitions in the pipeline is active or advanced, and even just in the advanced acquisition pool, which are transactions where we have assigned LOI, uh, that's about $116 million in sales. So correspondingly, we're very bullish on exceeding our 2023 sales target. And, um, and uh, next I'll turn over to EBITDA, which is on slide 27. Again, going through a similar calculation, the trailing 12 months is $405 million of EBITDA. Normalizing for COVID-related sales impacts, that's the $33.8 million impact on EBITDA. And then annualization of acquisitions and our Clearwater Investment Income brings us to a run rate EBITDA of about $504 million which represents a 9.6 EBDA margin. And then we add in uh, EBDA related to the growth assumption we made on the earlier side using a very conservative contribution margin of 20%. That's uh, about $130 million. And then a conservative estimate of the EBDA from our acquisition assumption. That would take us to about 642, 43 million in EBDA. So again, well ahead of our target, both in terms of dollars and percentages. Um, Turning over to slide 28 and capital allocation, during the quarter we allocated $34.2 million in capital to acquisitions and capital projects and by capital projects we're defining those as generating a return of at least 15% or greater on an after-tax unlevered basis. Really, the the capital project expenditures were across a variety of projects while the most significant investment in the quarter was in our MERMAX acquisition. For the year, we've invested roughly $582 million in acquisitions in project capital expenditures and the total capital allocated with those initiatives are about $803 million, leaving about $180 million still to, to spend on those initiatives. Looking forward, subsequent, subsequent to the quarter, we, as George mentioned, we completed the Westmoreland and Maidright acquisitions which is about another $200 million of capital allocation. And again, uh, just to re-emphasize, all of these investments, our expectations are a, a minimum 15% internal rate of return after tax unlevered. Turning to slide 29, looking at our balance sheet, it continues to be very strong. Our senior debt and total debt ratios were stable from Q2, our total debt to EBDA ratio staying at 3.4 to 1, and our senior debt to EBDA ratio staying at 2.1 to 1. Our overall credit capacity still remains strong at 426 million, uh, down slightly from 50 million last quarter as we've invested in uh, the projects I, I mentioned on the previous page as well as we made significant investments in working capital this past quarter, driven in large part by inventory and the issues I talked about in terms of securing more inventory to protect against supply chain disruptions, as well as some inflation hedging. Subsequent to the quarter, we renegotiated our senior revolving credit facility. We increased the facility by... US $250 million, bringing the total to roughly a $1.5 billion facility. And we extended the term maturity term date of the facility to November 26, 2026, i.e. another five years. And then finally, we added some ESG linked targets, sustainability linked targets to the facility, mainly tied to our greenhouse gas emissions, food safety targets, And our employee diversity targets. Turning to slide 30, the final slide in the deck, our free cash flow. Free cash flow for the quarter uh, was 245 points, or sorry, on a trailing 12 month basis was 245.6 million dollars, representing a 56.8 million dollar or 30 percent increase from 2020. Our free cash flow per share was a record $5.80 per share, as George mentioned earlier, representing a $0.93 per share or 19% increase from 2020. Our payout ratio for the quarter was 44.1%, or if you normalize for a full year at our current dividend policy rate and shares outstanding, it's 45.1%. That concludes the formal presentation. Uh, For the quarter, I will now turn it back to Misty for the questions section.
1: At at this time, if you would like to ask a question, press star 1 on your telephone keypad. Again, that is star and the number 1. Your first question comes from the line of George Dalmat.
4: Yeah, hi. Thanks for taking my questions. Um, In the SF, uh, uh, you guys called out higher input costs that exceeded selling price increases in the quarter um due to the timing. So can you maybe quantify that, give us a sense of magnitude? I'm just trying to get a sense of what I guess normalized margins are once price catches on to inflation.
3: Yeah, so so George, again it it's a, a challenging question in the sense that it, we're really not through what's been going on with commodities. And so in the short term we we're not you know, we're seeing some Mod- moderation in commodity costs in certain categories, which is a positive, but still, there's a lot of uncertainties there how the supply chain is going to pick up, what's going to happen with consumer demand. So, in, in the short term, it, it, it's challenging to answer your questions. In the longer term, you know, we're, we're, we're all of our businesses and their pricing strategies are focused on, you know, on an EBDA perspective that sort of 13% plus average in our specialty food group and, you know, roughly 7% average in our premium foods distribution group. Um, You know, those are the targets in sight and those have not
4: changed. Okay. Um, George, last quarter um, you mentioned that we lost about 25 to 50 million in potential revenues owing to labor constraints. Um, Would you estimate that number to be bigger, smaller or the same this quarter?
2: No, I'd say it's about the same, uh, George. Uh, similar issues. I'd say the second and the third quarter were very similar in terms of the challenges and the disruptions that we faced. Nothing much has changed, so about the same. Okay. And one
4: last point, if I may. There was there was some talk uh, last last quarter's call about um, adding extra sandwich capacity. Um, can you maybe give us a little bit of an update there? And and should we think of that investment as being maybe substantially higher than the unlevered kind of after-tax IRR of 15% that you typically get from other CapEx projects?
3: Yeah, so so we announced two projects with the, the press release. We announced a a second facility in Columbus, 144,000 square foot, to support our continued sort of artisan premium sandwich initiatives across North America. And then we also, and, and that was about a US $25, $26 million investment. And then we also announced a new plan for, to support a Canadian initiatives um, based in Edmonton. It both replaces an older facility as, as, as well provides additional capacity. And that's about a $17 million investment. So we'll, you know, post those will be, you know, well-suited to continue to drive some, some, some solid growth over the next couple of years. In terms of IRs, you're absolutely right, George. Those would be, um, you know, particularly the U.S. investment. We expect to be higher than that
2: 15% minimum. And I'll I'll just like to add to that, um, George, that that in general terms, the labor shortages or the labor challenges that we're having are also driving a lot of the demand. Uh, for our products, because a lot of our customers, a lot of our QSR customers in particular, are trying to solve some of their labor issues by uh, 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 coming to us. So, so again, the the, the demand is is there, and and it, it's even accelerating, given some of the the labor shortages that you're hearing out there uh, in in all uh, parts of the economy.
0: Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.
1: Your next question comes from the line of Martin Landry.
5: Hi, good morning.
3: Good morning, Martin. Uh,
5: um, there's, there's uh, you know, s- selling price increases contributed uh, a meaningful um part to your to your your revenue you're, you mentioned hundred and twenty million dollars during the quarter you're talking about putting further price increases. just trying to understand um, are if you see these price increases as as temporary or, or permanent you know under a scenario where we would see inflationary pressures abate next year could could we see you decrease your your selling prices?
2: I think in general terms uh, Martin um in the past um we've you know we've raised uh, prices of course to uh, reflect uh commodity type of inflation and uh at times as commodity prices uh come down then we will lower prices as well now in terms of your inflation question of course right now we're facing other type of inflation, including labor cost inflation. Um, yeah, so some, some of that inflation will, uh, I think is permanent and some of it is, is, is more temporary. Um, um, so, so uh, you know, again, we're, we're monitoring it, um, we're managing it. Uh, and, uh, you know, as Will said earlier, um, I think that there will be some commodity inflation. Uh, which normally we'll pass on to uh, to our customers and sort of maintain our, our margins at uh, consistent levels.
3: Yeah, and, and Martin, you know, it, it's interesting. In a number of our, especially our branded protein businesses, you know, some of the more differentiated products, these do set new consumer price points. So there is some permanent um, recapture of that margin. But what what businesses will often do is they'll use that additional margin to drive additional featuring. And so similar to how featuring was a negative impact on this quarter because of managing their margins, in the future it it, it could be an acceleration of their organic volume growth as they they use that additional margin to generate new demand.
5: Okay. Okay, that's helpful and um just wanted to maybe have a little bit more color on your um on your recent acquisitions uh Westmoreland seems to be you know the largest one you've done this year aside from Clearwater um can you give a, a little bit of color at um what attracted you to that business uh you know the the kind of historical growth rates they've they've uh, generated uh, potential for cross selling uh, synergies anything like that would be helpful
2: yeah, I'll start, Martin, by saying that, um, you know, Westmoreland is a very, very well-managed uh, company built by uh, uh, a very successful entrepreneur. Uh, they're a big player in uh, lobster meat. Um, this is an area that, you know, we've spent a lot of capital and a lot of effort with uh, our investment in um, in uh, ready seafood. Um, you know, we believe that lobster meat is a growing protein with respect to, uh, to demand, uh, we want to make it easier for consumers to consume uh, lobster. A lot of consumers don't want to buy the, uh, the tails and uh, have to uh, fight to uh, split it up and, and, and cook it. Uh, you know, our view is that we want to make it easier to uh, for consumers and uh, both in terms of uh, at-home consumption as well as uh, uh in restaurants and, and uh you know again Westmoreland is a leading player in North America in this area so uh a natural fit for us did you
5: have uh, that kind of offering before uh in terms of lobster meat uh
2: yeah when we um uh, when we invested in Ready Seafood we built a facility that um that basically uh, separated the uh the meat from the uh, the lobster and um and, uh, yeah, i it's, it's a major category for us. It, it, we've done well there. Ready Seafood has done very well building this category. There's some pictures of some uh, some of the uh, products, the lobster meat uh, products that uh, we ser- sell in, in the deck. And, uh, again, Westmoreland is uh, a major player in that segment. Perfect.
3: Yeah, and it, it okay. truly it, it, it's a very exciting category, Martin. Uh, you know, Ready Seafood made the investment in the Saco facility, as George mentioned and the IRR we've seen in that facility, it was all based on growth and it's just been fabulous. And and through COVID there's been a real sort of um, realization of, of the product by the consumer, both in retail and, and by food service customers across the U.S. So we're seeing tremendous growth opportunities and, and Westmoreland is part of the Ready Food Group strategy to to be able to benefit from that growth.
5: Perfect. Thank you. Thank you, Martin.
1: Last question: It's from the line of Derek Lathard.
4: Yeah. Good afternoon, uh, gentlemen, and, and congratulations on, on on another good quarter. Um, maybe just just talking, uh, continuing along the, the lines on the, uh, the the acquisitions. I was just curious on on the split between the two hundred million dollars that you paid between the the two companies, and and maybe um, uh, on the the you know what the uh, revenue contribution we should expect from both.
3: Yeah, so so uh, you know, vendors are very sensitive about individual prices, so we 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 don't talk about individual prices, um, Derek. But in terms of sales, uh, you know, Ready is about our um, Made Right is about uh, eighty million U.S. in sale, or roughly yeah, eighty million U.S. in sales, and Westmoreland's about one hundred forty million in sales, I believe we've disclosed it in the MD&A, so you'll have a chance to get the specific numbers there um and and the valuations you know if you if you wanted to sort of make some estimates you know made rights margin profile is very reflective of our specialty food group while westmoreland's margin profile is very very reflective of our our premium food distribution
4: group okay that's helpful uh, thanks Will. and um I mean like how should we look at the the timing of the um the unrecovered uh, covid or supply impacts over 2022
3: Yeah so so you know in terms of the third quarter I would suspect you know the impact we talked about the third quarter is 33 million all of that should be gone by the third quarter of 2022 assuming things continue to normalize, right? So airlines, cruise lines, we expect that to normalize over the coming two quarters. The uh, food service, similarly, you know, certainly by late next year, that should be fully normalized in terms of maybe events and some of those sort of final straggly components.
4: But, uh, yeah, you know,
3: certainly by Q3 next year, we we would expect that all to be
4: gone okay and uh maybe just one last one for me is just remind us where you are in in terms of you know the the increased automation in in the sandwich plants and and maybe just talk about um the decision behind building the um uh another sandwich facility and why in in ohio a second one in ohio
2: yeah for us uh derek as we said earlier um You know, we're seeing a lot of demand from various channels with regards to our products. Um, uh, The decision around Ohio is that we already have a facility there and a a management infrastructure there. So look at it as more of a satellite plant rather than a new plant, right? It it, it gives us 144,000 square foot of new capacity, and we already have an established uh, management infrastructure there. So that was the logic behind uh, Ohio. Um, and, um, you know, in terms of the automation initiatives, again, um, you know, it's well known that uh, labor is challenging. What we bring to the table for our customers is is the fact that, you know, we're able to scale and, and automate. So a lot of automation initiatives, not just in our sandwich group, but, but also throughout the, the company as we speak.
4: All right. Thanks, George. Thanks, Will.
2: Thanks there. Thanks,
1: Darren. Your next question comes from the line of Stephen McLeod.
6: Thank you. Good afternoon, guys. Hey Steve. Hey um, Steve. Okay. A couple of a couple of follow-up questions. Just very quickly, um, in terms of um Westmoreland, uh you cited you noted that uh the margin profile is sort of reflective of the PFD group. Would that business sit in premium food distribution? Is that is that the way to think about it?
3: Correct. Yeah, it, it'll form part of our seafood group and and premium food distribution, and consists of the distribution and seafood groups. Right.
6: Okay. Great. Thank you. Um, and then I just wanted to follow up. You know, you had, you had some have some really good slides about the major growth initiatives, slides fourteen, and then the cap capex expansion projects in, on slide fifteen. I mean, it's a bit of a big question, but is there any way to quantify kind of what the revenue contribution could be? From these from these growth initiatives and capex expansion projects. I mean, I guess as we think about um, beyond 2023, are these the kinds of things that that drive growth beyond that 2023 target?
3: Yeah. No. No. Yeah. You know, again, in that 2023 target, I said that nominal growth of six percent. Yeah, yeah, you know the reality. These are far and these are drivers far in excess of that. You know the the way we look at growth, Steve, is you know four to six percent volume growth is just sort of a no brainer. You know we, we, it's there. Our market's growing it faster than that, and that's easy to achieve. And then as we invest in these capacity initiatives, these new initiatives, you know, those are the factors that are are going to get us to you know that low or high single digits, low double digit growth rates and 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 that's exactly what these factors are,
2: yeah, if you look at what we've done historically, uh, Steve is we're kind of shy in terms of investing until we prove the demand, and once we prove the demand, we're not afraid to invest as as we've done in in the sandwich group uh, for example right so yeah absolutely the these uh and and you know we'll probably be coming out with our next five year plan uh sometime in. 22 and, and 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 all the sales projections will be adjusted in accordance to the uh, capital we're we're spending in, in these areas right
4: okay yeah that's uh, that that's helpful um
6: and then maybe just uh, one more question more of a, more of a near term question you know just thinking about the commodity inflation um labor inflation supply chain issues you know understanding obviously that these are manageable um over time but when you think about Q4, I mean, is it safe to assume that you know these factors will still be a headwind? The price that you put through won't maybe may, may not be enough to offset some of those headwinds. I'm just thinking more near-term versus longer-term.
1: Yeah, near-term,
2: near uh, Steve, I would say, as Will said earlier, it, it just depends on what happens to commodities. Commodity inflation is a big part of the overall inflation um, we're, we're seeing. So, you know, we're We've seen a little bit of a, uh, you know, of a downturn in terms of uh, commodities more recently from the record level, so I, I guess we'll see, you know, the rest it you know, the rest, yeah, there is some inflation uh, in other areas of the business, um, you know, it's pretty well manageable.
3: But, but Steve, I, I would add, and, you know, you saw this trend in the third quarter, uh, you know, our Premium food distribution group exceeded our expectations for the quarter, while our specialty food group was below expectations. And really, it was one a story of the reopening going better than, than we had planned and commodity prices taking off a lot stronger than we had we expected. And those trends will continue likely into the, the fourth quarter. The effect of the commodities hopefully will be much lesser on the specialty food segment as some other price increases take effect. And like George says, that we 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 are starting to see some moderation in commodity prices. But in general terms, those those trends will likely continue. And and that was the reason we moved our guidance for the year from being a percentage to a range. We're we're still very confident of being within our. Our EBITDA range, but um, likely will be below that nine percent target because of those factors.
6: Oh, okay. Okay, that's uh, that. That makes sense. Okay. Well, that's great. Color. Thanks. Uh, thanks so much, guys.
3: Thank okay. okay,
1: you, Steve. Your next question is from the line of David Newman.
7: Uh good morning, guys. Hey, David. Hey, David. Great, great results in a in a chaotic environment. Uh, obviously, here. Um, so, as you push through price increases, are you seeing anything at all in the way of any demand destruction, you know, mid growing concerns about uh, inflation or stagflation? Or are personal savings so strong that people are still spending? And I know you guys are really nicely balanced that you have the food at home and away from home it does give you a bit of a balance there and you can capture, uh, you know, people's eating or consumption patterns somewhere. So maybe just some thoughts on what you're seeing in the channels as far as the inflationary environment.
2: Yeah. So, so David, we're we're, we're certainly concerned about that. We're not seeing.
7: Okay. Well, that's that's good. get- and I guess I guess again, people are, have pretty thick pocketbooks right now, courtesy of the government. I guess they're spending um, at restaurants as well. And, and the supply chain. Think, can I just add, can yeah, I
2: add, add, David, that that one of the things you have to remember is that we generally sell premium products, right? So that means that the consumer that buys our products tends to buy them for reasons other than price. That's a key differentiating point to premium brands.
7: No, absolutely. And on the supply chain, George, um, and the challenges you guys are facing, we're kind of moving into the the peak season, um, obviously for lobster exports in the early part of the new year. Are you seeing any signs that some of these supply chain challenges are abating to any degree?
2: Um, Not really, David. I wouldn't say that. Um, In general terms for us, it just means longer lead times and. More stockpiling, and you know we have to to adjust the way we do business, basically, right? Right? We're managing, you know, it's different, but but that generally, again, we've adjusted.
7: Okay, and and you guys obviously the Clearwater results have been have been exceptionally strong, and I, I think there was some concern out there that you might not, depending on what the results were in the first year. I know you're not actually collecting till the second year, but it does look increasingly confident that you might be able to uh, receive your payment in the second year. Is that how you're looking at it?
3: Yeah. Hey, hey, David, can you do do us a favor? Can you mute your phone after you ask the question because we're getting a really bad echo from your phone.
7: Oh, okay. Sorry about that.
3: Great. Th- thanks, David. Oh, sorry, I guess it wasn't your phone. We're still getting the echo. Um, in terms of Clearwater, yeah, no, status quo, David, you're absolutely right. They're tracking well ahead of plan, and, and we would expect to see that, that interest payments start sooner. But the reality is there's also all sorts of other exciting opportunities we're looking at with them. And so, it, 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 you know, I, I can't commit to any one specific question at this point.
7: Got it. And last one for me, more of a housekeeping um, issue. But if I look at your growth capex for next year, obviously you, you've expanded your lines, uh, et cetera, in part because of the acquisitions you're doing, but also because you're you're investing in your plants. Does the growth capex looks like to me if I if I tally everything up, looks like it could be about 180 million next year. Am I off the mark there?
3: Yeah, that sounds about right, David. I'd, I'd have to go back to the math, and you know we're pretty the front. All all of the projects that we're looking at are you know that have been approved are in our MDNA. So and the way we generally look at it is, you know, maintenance capex is roughly thirty to forty million dollars a year. General CapEx is roughly thirty to forty million dollars per year, and then you have all the special projects which as you know they're all disclosed in our MDNA.
7: Excellent. Thanks, chairman Thanks, Thank you. David.
1: Your next question is from the line of John Zampero.
8: Thanks. Good morning, guys. Hey, John. Um, Maybe I'll start with a quick housekeeping question. Um, You gave some some really compelling growth numbers specifically for seafood and distribution uh, in the quarter. But um, I'm wondering if you can quantify those even approximately versus 2019 rather than 2020, just trying to get a sense of how those are doing versus pre-COVID.
3: Oh yeah, and, and and John, that's exactly what our COVID normalization calculation was when we went through the growth slide. So you know, we looked at when you, you you take out strip out inflation, the volume growth in the premium food group was you know three percent, and then you strip strip out the COVID impact, and it was roughly flat with 2019. In a premium food group, the specialty food group, you do that same calculation, and it was at roughly up 7% in volume terms from 2019.
8: Okay, understood. Um, I know it's uh, it's beating a dead horse, but the, the supply chain, and particularly the labor constraints, I know no one's got a crystal ball on this, but we'd just like to get your sense of how long you expect this to last, um, and, and are there any regional differences you're seeing that are worth calling out?
2: Yeah, John, I would say we're feeling more confident in in terms of Canada. I think Canada is looking at uh, opening the uh, doors of immigration a little wider, I believe, uh, this coming year. So um, we're feeling more optimistic about this situation resolving itself um, uh, sooner in Canada. Uh, U.S., we don't know. Um, We hope that this will be the case in the U.S. as well. I mean, we have to remember that the majority of our industry in particular relies on on immigrants for for labor so so again um um feeling a little more positive about uh the US uh, the Canadian situation improving uh, at this
1: point
8: okay understood and then sticking with that are are the labor shortages within your operations do you find those are solvable by wage increases or or are there other components like uh, immigration or or otherwise that you might need to fill that that labor gap?
2: I would say, John, that we're using every tool available to us to to resolve these issues. Um, Part of it, of course, is is wages. Um, But again, uh, you know, as I mentioned earlier, uh, automation is a big focus as well. Um, effectively trying to reduce our our dependency on on label with regards to all of our operations, right? right? So there's a lot of initiatives going on to deal with the situation.
8: Okay, got it. And then last one from me, um, I wanted to ask about the 2023 EBITDA margin goal. Um, It's a super helpful analysis you provided on on a bottom-up basis, but if I think about this from top down, you're expecting to be sub 9% margin this year, which would mean you'd need at least 50 basis points of expansion each of the next two years. Um, this has historically been a business that's grown sales at around the same rate as EVA does. So um, maybe just elaborate on what gives you confidence in the environment of food cost inflation and labor cost inflation that you can get that type of uh, margin expansion on either on the existing business or on your acquired businesses. Yeah. In terms of, yeah, I, again, I,
3: the, the compression we're seeing in our margins today in our minds is completely transitory. We, you know we fully expect to recover, whether it's through selling price increases or a normalization of commodity prices to, to, to recover that and, and get back to what is really the key driver of our margin expansion, which is sales leveraging. Um, you know, so you, know, if, if you and, and on that point, if you just normalize for the COVID sales impact, and 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 the annualization of of our acquisitions you know we're at a 9.6 9.5 9.6 ebda margin so um it's not that far to go and with with some normalization of commodities which is obviously not built into that bridge we gave um you know we're that's we're very bullish on it being able to achieve that 10% plus ebda margin
8: okay that's helpful thank you I'll pass it on Thanks, Sean.
1: Your next question is from the line of Sabat Khan. Right,
9: great. Thanks very much. Um, just, I guess, uh, along the similar lines, I think there was some commentary earlier around you know, the IR targets being around 15% for projects. Um, just looking at the Roy here over the last few years, it seems to be sort of in that high single-digit range, kind of maybe 10% this year. You no, know, is it maybe the acquisitions that are kind of keeping you from having sort of 15% ROIC, or how do you think about the that return metric sort of over the long run, or is there a target for that?
3: Yeah, no, it's very straightforward, Saba. It, it's it's both acquisitions and capital projects, because the reality is in these projects, they're generally 10-year-plus models, and quite often in the early years, they're putting pressure on our return on investment and then, as as we start realizing on acquisition synergies, uh, we start realizing on capacity investments. That ultimately was what is what generates those returns, and that takes time to appreciate. So, we made some significant investments over the last three years that have pushed down our our RONA, but. You know, 2020, 2021 should have been kind of a pivot year. And certainly when we run our modeling and we do our normalizations for the impact of the pandemic, you do see the returns starting to turn back up. But ultimately, yeah, no, we're very confident that over time that, you know, you're going to see as these investments play out. And we've got a history of that. You know, we went in earlier in our history, we went through a similar, it wasn't, near to the degree, because we were a much smaller company, but we went through a similar investment cycle where it pushed down our, our RONA, and then as we started realizing the returns on those investments, and, and, and we'd been very fairly stable on new investments for a period, you saw our RONA spike to well over
9: 17%. Okay, so is the idea, I guess, here that after, so is the investment period maybe next few years, or you know, I'm just thinking in terms of timeline. Is there a plan to sort of be around that 15% IR that you target, otherwise, or is that sort of just you know when the investment period stops?
3: Yeah, no. It, I, again, yeah, it, it's kind of a bit of the both. It, you know, the reality is is, is it, it should be in the relatively near future in terms of the commodity and the COVID transitory impacts going away and this stuff rolling out, but. If everything else stayed the same, then yes, it would be a relatively short-term. The only unknown is future investment, right? So so we are continuing to invest in new, cr- new sandwich facilities, meat snack facilities. You know, our acquisition strategy is, as George showed, is we've got a tremendous pipeline. So it, it, it is a little bit challenging, but, you know, the exciting part is the growth. And, and we, we see, you know, part of our process, Saba, is we do do with every significant investment that we make we do you know look backs and the reality is our legacy investments are all exceeding targets and we see that unfortunately you, you it's a little more challenging for you but you know the reality is it is working it's just it's it's being camouflaged by all the new investment and and that is not going to stop and you know fortunately or unfortunately
9: Okay, well, that makes sense. And then just kind of following up on the margin discussion earlier, you know, obviously the last couple of years, the last year and a half has been impacted by COVID. And if we look at the, the specialty food segment here, I guess what do you see as sort of the medium term potential here? I think, you know, margins this year are obviously along, along the lines of your guidance, but, you know, could we get north of that 10% over the next couple of years? And is that going to be a change in mix or just um, operating leverage as you were talking about earlier?
3: Yeah, no, it, it, a, a, absolutely. You know, as I mentioned earlier, you know, sort of 13% plus is our target for a specialty foods group. Um, so, and and and, but a lot of that is sales deleveraging, and then just the normalization of the commodity markets. Okay, all right.
9: Great. Thanks very much.
4: No problem, question.
1: Is from the line of Kyle McVie.
4: Hi guys, so just a quick question on the linking of your cost of debt. Um, capital to your ESG performance. It's an interesting concept you've moved forward with here and, and probably something that'll be increasingly topical as the years go by. So can you quickly provide maybe, maybe a bit more cover uh, color? Is this something your lender brought to you or did you propose, propose this to your lender and, and how meaningful is your ESG performance on, on your ultimate cost of debt capital?
3: Yeah. So this is something we brought to our lender. You know, we've been following the market. We've been very active, in, in improving our reporting around ESG, the principles of ESG have been core to our business since the beginning, um, and it just made sense given what we were seeing in the market that we reflect that that focus in our credit facility. You know, at this point, it's, it's not a, a, a huge factor; it's a, a plus or minus five basis points factor tied to the three metrics I mentioned earlier. But it's a step in the right direction and uh you know it 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 it's a signal of how important we view these principles and our continuing investment in them.
8: Got it. Well uh hats off to you for the move. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Thanks, Kyle.
1: You have a follow up question from the line of Derek Lazard.
4: Yeah guys, um just two two more for me and it's uh housekeeping. I was wondering if you uh will if you have an idea of what the I guess the, the, the pro forma leverage impact of the, uh, the the latest two acquisitions would be.
3: Um you know, I I I should know that off the top of my head, Derek, but I don't but it it it's um it, it really doesn't have a material impact on our overall financial position and covenants. There is some, but we'll certainly still be below our our targeted range.
4: Right. Okay. And um, and, uh, and a follow-up on, on the CapEx. Do you have a quick and dirty number that you're looking for for 2022? Total CapEx. I,
3: I, I, again, yeah. I, you know, we talk about maintenance CapEx, sort of that, you know 35 million on average 30 to 40 million a year in maintenance capex you know 30 to 40 million on general capex across all of our different businesses smaller projects and then just all the items we disclose in our MD&A as sort of above that that those two categories
4: okay so all of the all of, all of what you've disclosed in in uh, the MD&A is is 2022 20, capex
3: uh, yeah, was, some of it goes into 2023, um, but the majority of it is in 2022.
4: Okay, fair enough.
2: Thanks,
1: guys. There are no further questions at this time. I will now turn the calls back over to the presenters for closing remarks.
2: I'd like to thank everybody for attending today. Thank you very much. Back to you, Mystic.
1: This concludes today's conference call. You may now disconnect.
0: Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app.